0: Hi everybody, Ken Krogh and Tom Harrison here. We are starting a very exciting new project called Eternal Core and exploring God-centered mental health. That's our project going forward. We think it's got some massive opportunity to do some good in the world. And I wanted to talk a little bit about how we first met Tom and what we're going to try and do and what the problems are that are trying to be solved here. I met you from a phone call. I had just been through a pretty bad car accident that pulled me completely out of my previous world. (laughs) And I was experiencing some pretty difficult challenges. And I received a referral that said, there's a guy named Tom Harrison that can help you. And I gave you a call and you were already booked for like a week and a half, I remember. It was pretty hard to work into your practice. Can you tell us a little bit about your practice and what you were doing when we met.
1: I'd been in private practice since 1984. I was at Primary Children's Medical Center before that and at the University of Utah. I started up at Primary Children's way back in 1972. Wow. I was involved in that first inpatient psychiatric unit at Primary Children's Medical Center. And Dr. Paul Whitehead had recently finished his MD back east, and we found a need. And I was able to start with that group and be involved in that process. And so that was my introduction to really working in the field of psychiatry and psychology and clinical social work and marriage and family counseling way back in 1972. Now it's evolved. Things have changed. Oh, great. What was it like and what were some of the big milestones? Well, I remember one of the first things that I wanted to do after graduating from graduate school. I was invited to go down to Provo to the old psychiatric hospital Mm. on the day it closed. And we, with about 25 or 30 other Uh, mental health professionals had a walk-through. And we walked through and saw the straitjackets and the hydro pools and all the early things of what they used to use to help people with psychiatric problems. That was an amazing experience, Ken. A lot of that's pretty symbolic of a major shift. Right. And so in 1972 they closed that large big white hospital down and started an inpatient program for kids up at Primary Children's. I think it was the first one in the state, if I remember correctly. Still then, the only psychotropic or medications that were used at that time were like mellaril and Thorazine, which really just kind of knocked people out. Wow, okay. And slowed everything down. And I remember people that were having severe psychotic reactions or other severe reactions, we would just medicate them so heavily, they could barely walk and, and they were just so sedated that they could not do much. But that was about all that was available. And if people were very severely psychotic or terribly, terribly depressed, they also tried at that time uh, electroconvulsive therapy where you would disrupt the brain function and it would sometimes, if you disrupted it enough with enough treatment, then it would, if I could use the words, stir things up, so significantly that they couldn't make those old connections anymore and sometimes it would really help people we still do ECT now Uh, you know the profession still does electroconvulsive therapy but it's done in a very humane way now it's not like one flew over the cuckoo's nest (laughs) where you see you know sticking a piece of rubber or tongue blades so a person wouldn't have such severe convulsion, they would swallow their tongue, you know, but it's still effective, but they do it very differently than they did back then. At that time, the number one treatment was either behavioral treatment, where basically if people were doing certain behaviors, then we would reinforce other behaviors and we would give them, you know, Cheerios or we would give them some stimulant that they liked allowing them to do things, allowing them to uh, have interactions when they behaviorally change their dysfunctional behavior or their inappropriate behaviors. And so back then we did mostly behavioral therapy, some drug psychotropic therapy, some ECT, a lot of relationship-oriented therapy. We'd get them together and we would have groups where we would teach them other behaviors than what they had learned in their home or what they had learned culturally or environmentally. And there was a strong relationship component of helping them learn how to function in a group or relationship. Well, this is psychiatry we're talking about, right? right? right. Much
0: stronger focus on relationships, behavioral, other than just the pharmacology side. Right.
1: Right. Wow. And what I did at that time, I was a psychiatric technician, psychiatric specialist, and I would work one-on-one with the kids in creating a behavioral program for them to try and help them remediate their inappropriate behaviors. I see. But the majority of the program was based on that behavioral model, that kind of Skinnerian, rat in the maze, yes. reinforce the positive, and extinguish the negative. And, gotcha. and basically that's kind of what we did. And medicine was only used for those who really needed that significant sedative process that would change that behavior. So it really just took them out of the game and just right. subdued the symptoms. Right. And also helped their family to be able to move away from that. And then we also treated the moms and dads and kids to try and ameliorate the dysfunction we saw in the family. And then also treat the child and then gradually move the family and the child back together Ah. so the child could reunite with the family. So that was my initial approach. What was the next big change? I remember clearly it was the winter of 1983 or 84, we, meaning the whole staff of Primary Children's Department of Child Psychiatry, were invited up to the University of Utah. And they, meaning the pharmaceutical companies, recruited some of the finest and most respected psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, and we all attended this conference and they told us about Prozac, which was a serotonin reuptake inhibitor. And that was my first taste of, of these new drugs. And they touted it as it was going to be a real life changer. And yes, it's helped millions of people throughout, but we found that With the advent of these new psychotropic drugs, it was kind of like a shotgun approach. We're just going to cover the whole area with buckshot, and this is going to help. And it did help quite a few people. But, you know, there's always a positive side and a negative side. The positive side is people could then work better. They weren't doing the Meloril shuffle. They weren't having horrible side effects from the drugs. There were some side effects which we knew about initially. Uh, When some people you see an increase of of suicidal ideation or or ideas of suicide. Uh, In some people you saw a real difficulty with they felt different than they did before. And they weren't used to the changes because what a serotonin reuptake inhibitor does is it controls the process of the brain processing different things it makes everything queue up if you would and so what happens is you have to deal with this one before the next one hits we find with many people with anxiety and depression and other psychiatric illnesses that there is an overwhelming sense of information that moves across that barrier and hooks up with the receiver's sites. And so you get this over flooding of information, which then overwhelms the individual. We found with Prozac and Zoloft, which came later, and the other serotonin reuptake inhibitors, that it would make the brain cue it up so you wouldn't have that rush of information mm. going over to the receiver's sites. Is Prozac still popular today? Right, it is. Okay. but But they have... Been able to pharmaceutically create medications which are very similar, which are not so broad spectrum. I see. They're exacting, and so you don't have as many of those other symptoms that are created from just that shotgun broad spectrum approach. Gotcha. And so we have those that work better for depression, and those that work better for anxiety, and those that work better for some of the other. Psychiatric illnesses. Gotcha. One of the difficulties, Ken, of this change was relationship therapy began to diminish significantly. And what happened is the whole focus of therapy then moved to checking the medicines. And we found that if this medicine didn't work well, if we use this medicine with this anti-anxiety medicine or this antipsychotic medicine or this, that we would test these things and figure out what cocktail or what mm. combination of medicines would then best fit this individual and help their symptoms. And pretty soon psychiatry moved much more to a pharmacological medication mm. check so, the relationship
0: and the therapy side started really to started to diminish. Wow.
1: And so, instead of going and seeing a psychologist or a psychiatrist and working with them regarding the associated emotional or thought problems, the majority was I'm talking to you for 10 to 15 minutes about how's your medication doing and how we're going to tweak those medications, when I started with the Department of Psychiatry, I was put on their clinical faculty in 1977 up at the University of Utah Medical School. We still spent a tremendous amount of time trying to help psychiatrists and other medical professionals look at and understand the relationship components of mental illness. Yeah. And trying to help them resolve and understand those and help them in cognitive therapy of diminishing the, this thinking, which was problematic, and moving more to these other choices of thinking, which help people more frequently. Does that make sense? Yeah, it
0: does. You know, and it's got me thinking. So, so you were there in the big launch meetings where they pulled in the influencers right. over the whole profession. Mm-hmm. Pretty much the, the, the pharmaceutical drug industry. Exactly. And so we have this big breakthrough. And all of a sudden,
1: you saw a shift in, in how a psychiatry huge, was done. And they haven't shift. gone back in any way right. at all. No, if anything, it has continued. Because I have good friends of mine who are in medical school now or in their residency. And they don't even learn how to do therapy anymore. All they learn is about medications, hospitalization, and how to manage meds. So psychiatry has moved much more into a pharmaceutical process of understanding all the different pharmaceutical products that are out there and how you can appropriately mix those or put those in an appropriate cocktail to treat symptoms. Wow. And the difficulty with that is that whole relationship component, which was so important, which psychiatry and psychology and mental health treatment were based upon, took a real back seat, moved to the back burner of the stove, if you will. And many of those individuals, you know, relied heavily on those of us who did the treatment, who understood the treatment, But even in that treatment, a lot of the non-medical professions, those who did not have a medical degree, we're spending a lot of time talking to the patient about how their drug treatment was going, mm. what medicines they're now on, and then the communication between us and the medical community was we need to adjust this antidepressant, or we need to adjust this benzodiazepine for the anxiety, or we need to adjust this. So the focus became so far greater in the area of pharmaceuticals than it did on the individual and the treatment. And that's one of the reasons we're doing this eternal core process, is trying to help people realize there is a community which we are creating, which is called God-centric, eternal core, mental health providing. To understand more about the relationship component and have a community help these individuals realize that there are other ways of dealing with this problem than just taking psychotropic meds. Uh, just to catch you up, if you're tuning in a little bit late, we've been talking
0: about the history of the psychiatric profession. Uh, we've been talking about a new project Tom Harrison and I have decided to make available. It's called Eternal Core. And it's a combination of those who are looking for a community of relationships with people, you know, patients perhaps, or those recovering from challenges with mental, emotional, spiritual health, as well as practitioners, care providers. Our goal is to bring them together. And uh, let's talk a bit more. When we talk about community, how important is that in, in the healing process for these people who are
1: having challenges? It's huge. Because there has always been that doctor-patient relationship. Right. And it's a very important relationship. It's very significant. But it's a very private relationship secure, confidential relationship. And there was such a stigma for such a long time about seeking mental health help. And now, you know, with all these commercials all being, you know, bombarded on us when we, daytime TV and some nighttime, if you're having these problems, if you'll just take this pill, you'll be fine that, you know, within the last 20 years of my practice, I just retired from my practice just a year ago, but the last 20 years of my practice, people would come in and they would say, just give me some meds and I will be fine. That's all I need is some medicine. And they thought that that's all that mental health treatment was. That's a massive shift. Instead of moving people and helping them realize that some of the things you learned in your family of origin, or some of the things you learned from your trauma, or from your brain trauma, or from uh, the difficult situation that you had, wherever it is that you've learned some things that might work very well in business, but they're destroying your mental health. Yeah, And they're damaging you. What we're trying to do here is create an environment create a community where people can come and they can read articles from individuals who have a similar belief structure than they do. Or in fact, we're even trying to collect video stories right. of people in similar situations. We call them core stories. Right. And to get a core group of individuals who suffer from social anxiety. And they'd come and they tell their story, not breaking any confidences, Confidentiality is very important in the profession, but they're choosing to share and say, I want to share with you and I want to join a community where we can share these difficulties. And through that, realize we're not so isolated and alone. Realize that there is a community out there that can help me. And also that professionals can come to and we can show them the latest research. We can help them go and they can listen to four or five different professionals who understand depression really well. Wow. Or individuals who understand manic depression very well, which are two very different structures. Or individuals who understand post-traumatic stress syndrome and they can come to that community and they can read or they can listen to podcasts where we're interacting with people who have the expertise in this area and they can feel like the professionals are no longer just in this academic ivory tower but they're real people we show them in a real setting and they can relate to them and we are coming together as a community to help these individuals resolve these problems in a new and different way. That's
0: exciting. Everybody, Ken and Tom. We've been talking about the history of the psychiatric um, profession. Uh, we just talked about some of our ideas to help address what we feel like is a big need. But I'm going to ask you a hard question. Please. Are people getting better? Are they healing? Is is this pharmacological approach?
1: causing healing or not? One of my daughter-in-laws is a PhD in sociology. We've been having a fascinating conversation about how isolated people feel in this world and what they're doing from that isolation. People who have social anxiety, which right now we're finding more and more individuals. It's becoming a greater problem because we live in a very divisive society there are so many aspects of our society which can really just destroy people overnight we were talking about you know the different ways of dating she was talking about that some people you know they will they will meet over social media and they will talk and maybe meet personally one or two times and they might become even intimate with one another and then they just disappear wow and that creates that amazing sense of what did i do wrong and they've just vanished from my life and we're seeing a profound diminishment in intimacy in this millennial population and those underneath that millennial the general gen x's because You know, they can go home and they can look at social media for an hour and a half. They can order Uber and get food coming to their house. And now three hours has gone by and now it's nine o'clock and they think, I have to be at work tomorrow at eight and I don't want to have a relationship with someone else. I don't want to interact with someone else. Now what does that have to do with the question you asked me? Are they getting better? We're having new social anxiety and depression that is coming out of this isolation, which is new. And that's why in our communication and in our work for the last six months to a year about this, what can we create that's going to help this profound isolation? Wow. How can we help these people so that we're not creating more psychiatric diagnostic criteria. So we're talking about Eternal Core,
0: a brand new community that we are launching March 29th and 30th with an event, a two-day event. We'd love you to come and be a part of it. Uh, this is our first episode of many podcasts and vidcasts to come. We want to just give you a little bit of background on, you know, how Tom and I got together what the main problem is. So let's just tie it up with a bow a little bit here. Okay. The problem that we're facing, and you know, you were involved since 1972 with the psychiatric profession. You saw a major landmark shift in 1984. Correct. But you also saw something pretty important. You, I remember you, you gave me a little bit of a background of talking
1: to some of your colleagues about you know, where's God in the mix.
0: Tell us about that.
1: I remember back in the late 80s and the early 90s, I I was teaching up at the university, and I had a doctoral student that asked me a question in class. And they she said, okay, you're preparing us to go out and be a clinician. And they were frightened to death, yeah. you know, because all they knew was good academics, and they might have had... 30 to maybe 130 hours of face-to-face, and they were scared to death. How are we going to put this into practice? But they said, how do you get clients? How do you get people to come into your office? And so it started a process going for me, Ken, of I knew how I did it. I am a, a believer in Christ and in God, I call myself a Christian. And this is a
0: very faith-based community. Right, very A lot faithful. of your colleagues
1: right. have those
0: same belief right.
1: systems. And so, initially, I would advertise in the yellow pages, <laughs> and we put our names in there, and people would go through, and here were just all these names, no faces, nothing about them, you know, just these names. And also, we would put ourselves in professional magazines or things of that nature and we would do advertising, you know, old-fashioned advertising. But the bottom line is then we would have to wade through the clients that would come in and sometimes 30% of them were non-compatible with our skill level or who we were or our insurance uh, providers or things of that nature. And I found, after many years of practice, that if I turned it over to God and said, you know what I do well, you know me, and you know these people who are seeking my help, could you arrange for people to come in? Could you help me here? Because in my religious bent, we're supposed to pray over everything. We're supposed to pray about our work and our business and our fields and our our children. And and I thought, well, I'm going to start praying about my business. And I found every time I had openings, every time I needed new clientele, if I did it, within seven to ten days, they would fill up and they would fill up with individuals that I could help. Wow. And it was much more effective and it was much more cost effective. I had a website later on, but still nothing worked as well as patient referrals, people that I had had success with and praying and saying, please, you know who needs help. If you could find some people that would, I could help, please send them in. Now, there's a perception
0: in the psychiatric industry, psychology, that this is a very science-based, it's, it's not God-based and, and you don't bring it up. You can't talk about it supposedly with patience, but is that the case? Is it legislated where
1: God's not part of this relationship? And do your colleagues stay clear of that? Well, I know colleagues who have gotten into a great deal of problems by mixing uh, religion with their professional process. How, what does that look like? They use their religious background or their calling right or you know i'm a pastor i mean you know there are faith-based or christian counselors that you know you're going to see someone that's going to use the bible but if i would say to a patient could we start with a prayer i was in danger of losing my license, so really couldn't do that. So there were some some boundaries. But if someone brought up a religious process, or I served as a bishop in my religious belief structure, during that time I didn't sit there and advertise I'm a bishop in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but if they were referred and they started talking about how religion was part of their depression or anxiety or breakup or difficulty, then of course I could talk to them about that. But they would have to be the one to so initiate some pretty clear that conversation. Boundaries and
0: guidelines, then correct. Okay, and that's something correct. That, so back to your earlier story, I was just so intrigued.
1: You found that when you needed patience, you turned it to God, right? So what I did is I taught at the Department of Psychiatry, I taught in the Graduate School of Social Work, I taught in the Graduate School of Nursing. I was on quite a few different faculties, and so I found a group of individuals throughout the Wasatch Front that I thought I knew very well as colleagues. Some of them were Jewish, some of them were Catholic, some of them were Mormon. Some of them were Seventh-day Adventists, some of them were just strong faith-based people. So I took it upon myself. I wanted to find out in kind of a <laughs> interesting way. I don't think it was very subversive, but interesting way. So I made luncheon appointments with these colleagues that I really respected. And during the lunch, I would ask them questions, and then I asked them all, what do you do when you need new clientele? And... I found that the majority of them said, well, I turn it over to the universe. I ask God, I pray about it. I let my religious referral bases know that I have some openings. So many of them had this connection with this religious process, but their clients never knew that. Interesting. And so A lot of clients, you know, they want to come to someone who has a shared religious belief. And that's another reason why I thought this would be so helpful, is that at least we could have a community where then professionals could come. and. If you were in therapy in Salt Lake City and you were moving to Wichita, Kansas, you could find someone who also had a faith-based understanding, okay. and you would know that. But it was interesting. I, I didn't tell my graduate student, who was not a religious person, who, uh, if I remember correctly, was an atheist, or at least she claimed to be one, Uh, And she wanted to do this research on this, and she wanted to use that as, as her dissertation. And so she wrote up her information, and initially she came back and she said, it's interesting. It's so interesting because... I would never suspect it. But, you know, this psychiatrist said, I ask God. This person said, you know, I pray about it. This person said I turned her over to the universe. So there was a real effect. Right. Yeah, it it was a real method. And she found at that time that the majority of individuals who she talked to talked about a faith-oriented structure in how professionals in the mental health profession sought for new clientele.
0: Wow.
1: So So it's there. I found that fascinating. Her research ended up proving much more than my small little research did. But the great majority of individuals who I knew, now I being a faith-based person, are going to relate to a lot of faith-based people. So I knew that there was that Difficulty in the research, but hers was just random and it proved that many people also used a similar approach to get new clients. So
0: we're talking about Eternal Core. This is an event that we're launching March 29th and 30th at the Little America Hotel to start a community of both patients and care providers who want to have relationships and interactions with a faith-based foundation. In other words, God. Now, they may not use God. They might call Him their higher power. That's okay. It's not a religious based meaning. Or we're not, her, their yeah, higher Or power. her, yes. <laughs> we're not talking yeah. about, you know, members of the predominant religion here. Now, we're both members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but many of our speakers, many of our people who will be working in this process, coming from all over the country, our first event is here in Salt Lake City. Our next one potentially will be outside of Salt Lake City. We want to invite you to be part of it. This is our first episode of the podcast and vidcast we call Eternal Core. Now, the, the words Eternal Core is pretty exciting. We're not going to give it away right now, but in our next episode, we're going to tell you how we came up with Eternal Core. And Tom has some really powerful principles We're going to start walking you through. Thanks for joining us today. Again, the main challenge was a transition away from relationships and not really recognizing openly God's hand. We're trying to pull that back together. Anything else you'd like to add, Tom?
1: Come. We'd love to see you at the conference. March 29th, March 30th, Little America, Salt Lake City. Come and join us.
0: Thanks, everybody.